Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. If you got your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the second half of the Cain and Abel story. We're going to be looking at 8 through 15. And again, the title of today's message is The Root of Destructive Anger, Part 2. And we're going to get to the bottom line of why are people so angry. As you saw in the prophecy update, they're finding more and more people in our culture are angry, angrier. Whether that's road rage or just simple going through life, people are not getting a grip on their anger. I saw an interesting story this week out of Reuters, and it reported that some German entrepreneurs have set up a swearing hotline. Yeah, yeah. It's in German, and you can call German if you want to. It's called, if I can pronounce it, Schimpflos. Schimpflos is uh, the German word for swear away. And for $2, U.S. dollars, you can call the swear away hotline, and you can rant for $2 a minute on anything you're angry with. And the person on the other line will just sit there and listen to you. And I know a lot of people say, hey, man, that sounds great, man. We just love to vent to some German folks over there in Europe because they don't know who I am. They don't care. And I could cuss the air blue if I wanted to, and no one would know. It's a very clever marketing scheme, and they're making a lot of money because people call them up, and for $2 a minute, they just go crazy on the phone and vent their frustrations out to this German swear line. And uh, anyway, the point that I bring this up is that is not a good way of handling your anger to just call up a swear line and just let it rip tater chip, man. That doesn't help you. I know a lot of people say, well, just count to 10 and squeeze your fists and take a walk and get some fresh air. That does not work. It might work temporarily, but long-term, it doesn't help the anger because the anger that's inside of all of us is a very deep issue. Here's what I have to come to grips with, I've had to come to grips with, and we're all going to have to come to grips with. The sin nature has created a monster inside of you, and you have to come to grips with that. It's a hard pill to swallow, like I mentioned before, but there is a monster inside of you. And if you don't control that monster, that monster will come out and hurt people. But there's an old saying in the counseling world, hurt people hurt others. So when they're hurt, they get created into a monster, and that monster comes out and inflicts wounds on other people. They don't know they're doing it sometimes, but they do. But the issue is a deep-seated bitterness, anger at something. And sometimes they don't even know themselves why they're so angry. They haven't discovered it. But it definitely comes out and everyone stands in the way of their wrath when it comes out. We'll get to that in just a bit. So we're going to look at the story of Cain and Abel, second part. I did the first part last week, so if you weren't here, you can listen to it online. But nonetheless... We started delving into what made Cain so angry. He brought an offering to the Lord that was not accepted. It wasn't prescribed by Yahweh, but he decided, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to bring this to the Lord and basically thought he should, that the Lord should accept it, and the Lord didn't. And then he went crazy. He went uh, angry and, and 
He's very upset at this point in time. Where to, the point is, he doesn't even answer the Lord. He's so mad when God's questioning him. Let's do a little backtrack so you can see the context and read what we, we studied last week just to give us a good place where we're at. This is Genesis 4, 1 through 7. Let's read this real quick and get caught up. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord, basically a God-man. She thought he was the Messiah. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel, which means breath, temporary. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. We talked about the connections between the two, the farming and the sheep. And it'll come into play today when we talk more about this. And in the process of time, it came to pass. So, so this was a regular occurrence where they brought offerings to the Lord. Okay, so it wasn't a one-time event. That Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. The ground's connected to the curse, by the way. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. Abel is giving blood sacrifice. That's the contrast. Blood sacrifice versus works-based offering. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. Why? Because it was a blood sacrifice. And did not respect Cain and his offering because it was not a blood sacrifice is the idea. And Cain was very angry. And his countenance fell. You can see it on his face. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? The Lord already knows why he's angry, but he wants Cain to confess. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Accepting the offering, obviously. Not him as a person, but accepting the offering. So he says, Cain, you know, you know what to do. Why don't you do it? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. And like we talked about last week, the idea of sin lying at the door, it's an Arcadian term that Moses is using to give us an understanding that, look, if you don't get control of this anger, Cain, that you have, that a demon is going to use it against you to get a foothold in your life, and control you and manipulate you through this anger to hurt other people. That's what we talked about last week. So there's heavily demonic influence. By the way, when I show you another passage later on today, you'll see that what Cain ends up doing is demonically inspired, or even we should say even satanically inspired. And basically what God is saying is, you need to master this. You need to figure this out. You need to figure out the source of your anger, whether it's legitimate or illegitimate, because you're perceiving reality wrong. And if you keep perceiving reality wrong, it's going to flush out and you're going to hurt somebody, is what God's trying to tell him and warn him about. The graciousness of God is he will always warn us about things. He will send this somebody, something, a circumstance to say, look, if you don't get control of this, this is how you're going to end up. So always will do a warning. So he warning, he's warning Cain, you've got to get control of your anger. Okay, like we said last week, what's going on here? Cain thinks that God should accept anything he offers him. God has already stipulated, like we showed last week, that he wants a blood sacrifice. That's how you approach him. We talked about that. And that's been the pattern all through Scripture. But Cain says, no, I have a better idea. He should just accept the fruit of my labor, and it should be good enough. It's funny, I had a conversation, not, I shouldn't say a conversation, an email conversation with an individual that was very upset with me and Jan Markell. We did a radio program about, well, back in February, I think it was. We were talking about how bad Christian music is and how unbiblical the lyrics are and, uh, and you know, Jesus is my boyfriend type of music stuff out there. Have you ever seen those? I, ca I can't even sing Christian music sometimes because it's too feminine. It's like Jesus is my boy. I don't want to sing Jesus is my boyfriend songs. It just so anyway, we talked about that. 
And uh, this guy, already it's July almost, and this guy apparently heard the broadcast, and now he decides to send a hate mail. So he sends his hate mail. Jan goes, Brandon, handle this. And so I respond to him. And uh, what he was saying is that, and in essence, what was Cain doing, okay? What he was saying is, you guys are being judgmental. You know, whatever we present to the Lord is from our heart. And it's what the Lord's put on my heart. And this is what how I write the lyrics. And, and it's not Jesus is my boyfriend thing. And yada, yada, yada. He just kept making excuses of the music that he was playing and that there was nothing wrong with it. And honestly, the music he was playing, it's wrong theologically. So I responded and I said, hey, look, dude. I said, um, let me paraphrase this because I'm from California. Um, dude, you are theologically upside down. And the way I explained it, I said, it may be from your heart, but let me give you a passage so you understand where I'm coming from. And understand where Jan's coming from. I said, Jesus told the woman at the well, you must worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Okay, in spirit, he wasn't referring to the Holy Spirit. He was referring to the heart, the internal being of the person. True worship of God must come from the internal of the person, not outward, and must be then under submission to the truth. It's not just simply you must worship the Lord in spirit. It's spirit and truth. And I said, what you need to understand is you're offering worship to the Lord from your heart, but it's not edited or vetted by the scriptures. Hence, you have a missing element in your worship. You must worship Yahweh in spirit from your heart, but that worship must be edited or under the submission and authority of scripture, which is what you're failing to do. And then I concluded and I said, you're on the same wavelength as Cain. And I ended it there. And I have not heard back from him from that one. But what's the point? Cain thought, well, if it's from my heart, if I have good intentions, then God should just accept my sincerity. Sorry, sincerity is not in Scripture. It's you obey what I tell you to do. And great, if your sincerity is there, that's great, but you must do what I prescribe you to do. I want a blood sacrifice. I do not want you coming to me thinking you can offer worship to me in error without truth. And that's what Cain's starting to do. It's a very arrogant position, by the way, a very arrogant position that Cain is exhibiting, but we see it in Christians today, especially Christian musicians well, I should be able to offer anything to the Lord because it's from my heart. No, you're wrong. Like, for instance, the biggest song out there is Reckless Love. The problem is there's nowhere in Scripture where you find the word reckless attached to God's love. If you define the word reckless, it's nothing that Scripture says. And yet, it's the biggest selling song out there has like 87 million hits on YouTube. Why? Are enough Christians not understanding that every theological thing that guy is saying in writing is wrong? Do they care? And that was our point. But that's the climate that we live in. No one cares anymore about the prescription. They would just rather offer offerings of Cain to the Lord. It's from my heart. Well, my thing is, if it's from your heart, the Mormons say their stuff is from their heart too, because they have burnings in the bosoms. 
And that burning of the bosom, they think because they're sincere that it should be acceptable. And I tell the Mormons, you are sincerely wrong because you're not working and functioning under truth. By the way, just as a side note, if you go to the Mormon offices there in Utah and they have like a museum there, this is amazing. They have a statue and an altar there in their little museum, Mormon museum, and it's the altar of Cain. Why in the world would they make an altar celebrating Cain's offering? Because it's a Cain religion, I guess. Why would they do that? It just, it was beyond me. Ed Decker showed that in his video, and it's like, you guys be kidding me. And they're celebrating Cain's offering. Cain's offering is, I did it my way. That's the song that goes with Cain's offering. Who sang that? Tony Bennett? What is it? I, or who was it? Who? Frank Sinatra. I got the wrong guy. Okay. So Frank Sinatra, that song needs to be played with Cain's offering. I did it my way. Okay. Let's get into the text now. Verse 8. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother. Oh, it seems like a casual conversation. No, this dude's going to put a hit on him. This is a mob hit. Why is he talking to him? He's getting ready to assassinate him. This anger is not being mastered by Cain. It's going to flow out. Cain is mad at God. Can't fight God. You can't attack God because God's invisible. He has no physicality. So guess who he's going to go after? The closest thing next to him that represents God, his brother. So the idea is going to talk to him. And then it says, and it came to pass when they were in the field. So basically, you're going to take them in the field, get them away from everybody. There's more people, his brothers and sisters. There's more brothers and sisters here at the time. It's not just Cain and Abel on earth. It's a lot of other kids. So they're older. So he's going to take them in the field. And then it says, and Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. That's why he took him out in the field. So he conned him out to go into the field. And there's a lot of artist renditions that have painted this attack on Abel and, uh, They've captured like the essence of it. But at the end of the day, this is the first murder in the Bible. This is the first religious war in the Bible as well. So there's a lot here. And so what we want to unpack a little bit before we move on, what's going on here? Why did he go after Abel? Because the answer to that will be the same answer why the LGBT movement comes after you and I. It's the same answer of why California is getting ready to stick on a new law, if this passes, to eliminate pastors from talking against LGBT. It's the same reason. It's the same reason you're going to get fired from work if you express your opinions about your opposition to transgenderism or castrating young boys to make them female. It's the same issue. So what you're going to learn with why he went after Abel is the same reason they're going after you and I. So this is totally applicable for us. First of all, Abel has the sheep. You think, what's the big deal about that? One is a farmer. Cain's the farmer. Abel is the shepherd, and he has the sheep, right? What's the big deal about that? God wants blood sacrifice. Since Cain is a farmer, he doesn't have any animals. Where does he have to go to get the animals to be sacrificed? Abel. And this has been perpetual. The Hebrew is saying that this has been going on for a long time. It's not just like a one-time event. Every time the boys or anyone has to sacrifice, they have to go to Abel 
who then provides the lambs for them to be slaughtered. He has to go through him. In one sense, Abel is acting as a priest in that sense. You have to go to them for the sacrifice to get the animal. Week after week, month after month, year after year, he has to keep seeing his brother and keep going to him. And he's dependent on his brother for the sheep. It puts Cain in a dependent state. And he didn't like being dependent on his brother. In fact, he's starting to resent his brother because he has to go to him for the sacrifice. You can see how that animosity is building. He's sick and tired of doing business with his brother. Family sibling rivalry is already happening. Let me add something into this. Abel is a prophet. Jesus called Abel a prophet. Hence, that meant that Yahweh was speaking through Abel information to give out as a prophet of old. Don't you think that kind of upset Cain? Why doesn't God talk to me? Why does he talk to my brother only? You know, it's funny. Moses' family did the same thing. Miriam said, I don't know why he talks through you. Why does he talk through me? And guess what she got? Leprosy for that one. She reared her ugly head against Moses, and she got spiritually jealous of Moses. Boom, leprosy. Don't talk about leadership like that. The issue is you see this animosity towards spiritual leadership. Abel, even though he's a second born, is showing himself that he is the spiritual leader. By the way, that theme will continue through the Bible. Primogenitor was a big issue in the Middle East, that the firstborn son got everything, right? But what the Bible will continue to show is that the second born will be the more spiritual for some reason. And God reverses the order. So obviously with Jacob and Esau, Jacob's second born. He's the hill catcher, came second. He's the younger, right? And same thing with Ishmael and uh, Yitzhak or Isaac. Ishmael was born before him, even though to another wife. But it was the second boy. So you'll see this theme being carried through all through Scripture, and Abel's a second born. But he has the position of spiritual leader. Why? Well, I think you can tell already with the two boys who's more spiritually minded, who's more in fellowship with the Lord, who's more obedient of the boys. It's Abel. Okay, There's no secret here of why God chose Abel to be a prophet because Cain wouldn't want that position. It's irrelevant to him. It's just like when Esau sold his birthright for porridge, for stew. He didn't consider it anything valuable. And so you obviously see God uses those who respect him, who want the spiritual blessings, and who will obey. Obviously, Abel is that person. But here's the thing. Here's the kicker. What's Cain's problem? Doesn't he know that? He's the one in disobedience. He's the one who doesn't want to be close to God. He's the one who doesn't want the fellowship and the positions. It's Abel that wants it, really. See, at this point, it doesn't matter. He becomes spiritually jealous of Abel. He doesn't take into effect all the obedience, all the faithfulness, all the sincerity, all that comes with Abel. He doesn't care. Cain thinks he should have access to God any way he wants to. That's his problem. And then that, because, because he is rejected in his approach to God, not him as a person, but his ways are rejected, then he turns on Abel for this. And what we call this is called spiritual jealousy. Okay? Why do you think Muslims kill so many Christians? 
in the Middle East. Muslims rank the highest in persecution around the world. Do you know why? They know they don't have a relationship with God, but we do. They don't, I mean, they won't admit that, but intuitively they know that because they're trying to earn God's favor, and we're not. None of the Muslims ever know if they're going to be saved or not. They don't have assurance, yet you and I do. That becomes a spiritual jealousy. And because it becomes a spiritual jealousy, they end up doing the same thing as Cain, killing somebody, jihad. It totally makes sense. This is the way the world's becoming. Do you really think that the left, even in politics, do you really think they just personally hate Donald Trump? I'll use that as an example. They hate what Trump represents. That's what they hate. And because everything he's doing is pro-Christian, pro-Israel. And they hate that. So it's not even a political issue. They hate you and I. Planned Parenthood hates you and I. They're spiritually jealous because we are connected to God, and they are not. That's the issue. Now, 1 John will bring this out. And what I want to bring out in 1 John is a little bit more insight that John gives about how demonic this is. Let's go to 1 John 3, 10 through 12. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Now, let me give you some background on 1 John. 1 John is not about salvation. 1 John is about discipleship. That's the whole context. So when you see these phrases, children of God, children of the devil, he's actually referring to believers. And I'll show you this because he defines it. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. The, I, the context, he's talking to the believers, and he is saying those believers who do not practice righteousness or love their brother are of the devil. What it means is it's a fellowship term. Of the devil means they're fellowshipping with the devil, so to speak. They're an opponent of truth. They're not exercising godly behavior versus a believer who's a child of God is a fellowship term of they are exercising godly behavior. Okay, so that's the context. Verse 11, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Who's he talking about? Believers love one another, right? But then he he switches and he says, in contrast, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one. That phrase, of the wicked one, means that Cain was under satanic influence. It wasn't just simply Cain's anger. What did God warn Cain about? Sin is at the door. I told you that was an Arcadian term that is actually a demon is at the door, so to speak, ready to pounce and use your anger to do something really bad. Hence, when John writes 1 John, he connects it and says, at some point, because Cain didn't master this area, Satan took control, a beachhead, a foothold in this area, and then worked through Cain to kill Abel. Oh, wow, this is bigger than I thought. Yeah, you better believe it's bigger than you think. It doesn't just some old boy getting mad. This is satanic and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteousness. Hence, this is where we get spiritual jealousy. It's from 1 John. That's the issue that's causing Cain so much anger, is he's spiritually jealous of Abel. Now, let's explain this a little bit more. 
Whenever other people feel guilt because of their behavior in your presence, and they know they are contrary to God, they know you live a somewhat righteous life, okay? You're not perfect, but you're living fairly righteous, okay? You're doing things as best you can to live for God. When you do that, they will find it very easy to hate you, okay? Because they know that what you're doing is approved of God, your behavior, and their behavior is not. They know that. How do I know they know that? Because Paul said the law of God is written on their hearts. I don't have to convince anybody of that. Hence, when they see your good behavior, let's say a heterosexual marriage, and that you support biblical marriage, they are going to hate you for that. When you support two genders, they will hate you for that. They know it's right, but they hate it. Now, this thing about Satan using this, guys, it's a warning to all of us. He's talking about in 1 John that when you're manifesting works of the devil, when you're doing things in fellowship with the devil rather than in fellowship with God, you can have an area in your life that Satan will take control of if you don't take control of, and he will use it against you to control you. And he will use that to hurt other people. That's what he did with Cain to hurt Abel. Now, it could be anger. It could be an addiction. It could be whatever, your pride. It doesn't matter. if you, The same concept, if you don't figure out an area, and you say, well, I got this problem. Yeah, I know, I know. It's kind of my pet sin. That pet sin will be what Satan uses against you and other people. He will control that area, and you won't know it. You will not know it. When you do identify the area, this is amazing. When you do identify the area where he is working to control you or influence you through whatever proclivity it is, and we all have them, when you figure that one out and you try to correct, game on. At that point, he will start attacking you because he does not want to be found out and find, and he doesn't want you to find out where he's operating from in your soul. Then at that point, it's game on. You will be hit as hard as you have ever been hit if you discover where he's working through you because he doesn't want you to see that. He doesn't want you to know where he's working in you because he can control you, manipulate you, and influence your thoughts in that area, and you won't know it. That's what God told Cain to do. Figure this one out, dude. Figure out the sore spot. Figure out why you're so ticked off at me. Because if you don't, you're going to do something really, really bad. This is called the way of Cain in Jude 11. The way of Cain is the envy of other believers or those who have a relationship with God and then perpetrating murderous acts and then deny the responsibility for it. It's the way of Cain. And you see that in all kinds of false religions. So back to Satan. Why take advantage of the anger in Cain? Use that to kill Abel. Well, number one, Abel's a prophet. And here's the crux of the matter. Like I told you, this is the first religious war. Satan is trying to wipe out the seed line of the Messiah. He was told in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman will destroy you and crush your head. Satan, he already knows how Cain is. He probably saw it from a little boy, and he says, man, that kid, I, he's mine. I got this kid. He's all messed up already. And he got Cain, and, and so he knows, I don't have to worry about Cain. I got him. 
He's in my back pocket. This Abel boy, mm, I don't know, man. He's a prophet. He's pretty good, man. Pretty righteous. And uh, he does a lot of righteous things. He's obedient. He's obviously in fellowship with Yahweh. And he's a priest somewhat because they keep going to him for lambs. Hmm. The idea is Satan perhaps thinks, I got to destroy him. He's possibly going to produce the seed line of the Messiah. And so the killing and murdering of him through Cain is to try to offset the seed line. That's why Satan's involved in this. You'll see in Genesis 6 that once humanity starts spreading out and there's multiple people that Satan has to deal with, he doesn't know which one might be of the seed line, so he does his best efforts to mess up the genetic line of human beings in Genesis 6. So all at this point, early on, Satan is trying to destroy the line of the Messiah. And he thinks theoretically it's coming through Seth. And it does, by the way. It does follow through that line. Anyway, that's the bigger spiritual issue here. But what's happening here with all of this? There's a lot here. Cain is misperceiving that he's being rejected rather than his works, if that makes sense. He's taking it personally that God's rejecting him. He doesn't see that God's rejecting his works. God's not rejecting him personally. And that's what the world doesn't understand. They think because because they have devised their own way of salvation that God is rejecting them as a person. He's not. He's just saying, you can't approach me that way. But that's what happens to people. It's a twisted logic that starts happening. Well, God rejected me. So I don't want anything to do with God. He doesn't accept what I have to offer. Then I don't want anything to do with him. That's people's mindset. And they conflate the rejection of their works with the rejection of the person. And that becomes a major sticking point in all of this. Let's return to the text. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Now, obviously the Lord knows, right? But what is he doing? He's trying to elicit from Cain a confession. Where is your brother? That's a question of confession. Tell me what you did is the idea. And uh, he's calling upon responsibility for Cain. And watch how he responds. It's just um, utterly amazing. He said, I don't know. It's the first human lie. Am I my brother's keeper? You know what he's, how you, how you actually read that in the Hebrew? Cain is actually saying that that question from you, God, is inappropriate of me. Oh, talk about arrogant. It's almost like, how dare you ask me that question? Am I my brother's keeper? He's absolving himself of human responsibility. And it's, it's utterly amazing to watch his attitude. But what's the answer to this? Are you your brother's keeper? Yes, you are your brother's keeper. But he's saying, I don't have any responsibility towards him. So he's actually compounding the problem. Let's do a little bit of application before we move on. You and I are responsible for other people. Okay, you're going to just have to accept it. You're responsible for other believers and how they behave. You're responsible for your own family. You're also responsible for your extended family. You're responsible for anyone that God puts in your path. You may not believe that, but that's the idea that Cain tries to bring up and saying, oh, I'm not going to get involved. It's not my business. None of my business. No. That is completely foreign to the Bible. Even if you were in Israel or now in the church, it's a corporate community. You are responsible for other people. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, here's, let me give you the opposite. So many people think, well, that's none of my business. 
I'm not going to get involved in that. But it's like black and white sin and stuff like that. How come you're not saying anything about that? I don't know. That's their kids or whatever. No, 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 no. I've even heard grandparents say, well, it's not my kid, but that's your grandkids. That's your grandkids. What are you talking about? It's not, it's not my kid. That's your grandkids. You're responsible for your grandkids. And so many people decide, oh, I'm going to check out. It's none of my business. And they, you know, no, 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 no. No one gets to check out. No one gets to act independent. Because if you decide to take the excuse of Cain, am I my brother's keeper? You're going to end up with the same mentality as Cain. And at the Bema seat, Christ is going to say, you're responsible for that person. Why, why didn't you say something and help that person? Why didn't you talk to them? Why didn't you confront that? Why didn't you say something? And the sin of silence, people think, is a mark of morality. Look, folks, the sin of silence is you being complicit with what the person's doing. If you don't talk, you're giving your pr approval to it. One of the things I have learned there is no neutral ground. You don't get to stand by on the sidelines and sit this one out. You're going to have to make a choice. If your family members, grandkids are getting out of line, you have to confront that. Now, they may not respond to you, but at least your hands are clean. As Paul said, I'm innocent of anyone's blood. I've told you from pillar to post what I needed to tell you. If you can do that, that's great. But if you see wild behavior in your family and you decide, well, that's my, my uncle's kids or, or my brother's kids and I'm their uncle, I shouldn't say anything. Yeah, they're smoking dope, man. Are you going to say anything about that? They're out of their minds. Are you going to say anything? No, nah, I don't want to get a fight. Too bad. The fight's here. Welcome to the fight. And they're going to bring the fight to your door. And you're going to have to be forced eventually to say something. And I know none of us want to be hated. We all want to be liked, and I get it. But you're going to have to push past that. Because at the end of the day, if you stay silent and say, am I my brother's keeper? You're taking the way of Cain. Verse 10. And he said, what have you done? Now God turns into the accuser. No more playing around. No more mercy. He won't confess anything. He's shirking responsibility. Now judgment's coming. The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now instantly, God goes into cursing of him. So now you are cursed. It's a punishment from the earth. He's alienated from the ground. Isn't it funny? He was a farmer. Now he's being removed from farming, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So the blood you shed on the ground now is doubly cursed. It's not going to produce anything for you. It was bad to begin with, with Adam's cursing of the ground, but now it's doubly cursed. He will not be a farmer. He had his whole vocation removed from him as a judgment for what he did. You've polluted the ground with your brother's blood. Again, the ground is always related to sacred space in Israel. Verse 12, when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. So it's just the whole ecology for him specifically will not work for him. What happened? A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. You're going to become a nomad, a wanderer is a term that, that's going to be used. And what you'll see later on is they start creating cities. Instead of staying in an agrarian culture, they'll go into cities. But the idea is he's detached and rootless. He's walking in darkness as a wanderer. It's, a, it's kind of a metaphorical way of, of saying he's lost. Verse 13, and Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Are you kidding me? Are you really kidding me? I can't believe he said that. 
He's saying it's too much for him, the punishment. You, dude, you just killed somebody. What are you, insane? Yes, he's insane. Insane people think they don't need to be punished. Insane people think, I shouldn't have to do anything because of my action. I, I should just be forgiven and we just walk on. You're insane. You may be forgiven, but there's consequences that follow things. But you can see how these politicians, that they have some torrid affair with an intern, and all they have to do is go in front of the camera, I'm so sorry. And then they just life goes back on, right? It just keeps going, rolling. No consequences. They keep rolling. It's not how it works, man. So now he's ticked off even more at God for these consequences. And here, watch what he says. He's in self-pity. I mean, wow. Surely, in verse 14, surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. So the idea, I can't farm. I won't see you. I, I'm, I'm separated from you. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. He fears social exposure, social reputation loss now. He's more worried about his reputation with other people. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. He's afraid of physical exposure as well. Well, isn't that funny? Isn't that ironic? That he's afraid of being murdered, but yet he's the one who murdered his brother. Isn't that crazy? It's like a prisoner saying, don't put, don't put me with these guys in the jail because, you know, they're going to kill me. Yeah, but you killed someone else. You probably should get the death penalty. Uh, and so it, it's, it's very ironic, all these things. And he's complaining that this is too much for him. So the Lord then corrects. And make sure you understand that he corrects. He's not lessening the punishment. Verse 15. And the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone find him, finding him should kill him. So there was kind of an act of mercy, but the idea is, no, I'm going to correct this. No one's going to kill you, and I'm going to correct this. I'll put a mark on you. We don't know what the mark is. A lot of the rabbis had uh, theories about what this was. They thought it was the name of Yahweh on his forehead or, uh, you know, the tetragrammaton or this one letter of Yahweh's name. We don't know. And there's no point in even trying to figure this out. It was just a mark that everyone saw and they knew he was off limits. But it, again, this is all correction and uh, it's not a lessening of the punishment. You might ask this question before we get into the application. Why didn't God kill him? He murdered somebody. He deserves death. Ah, yes, you're right. But the law and the penalty for murder has not been issued until Genesis chapter 9, after Noah's flood. So it is a sin, but it's not a transgression because there's no law against murder at this point in time. Does that make sense? You have to understand, someone can sin but not trespass the law because the law is not issued. Once the law is issued in Genesis 9, then from that point on, it's a sin and a transgression. So there's no death penalty attached to this at this point in time. And so that's why he gets off with his life, but yet he is cursed. There's no doubt about that. That being the case, then what's the application? Because there's a lot here. The first thing I want you to understand is that there's a twofold division in humanity that's starting to occur in Genesis 4 between Cain and Abel. There's a twofold split. It's starting to happen. Humanity is being split. What did Jesus say about the split? I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. Father will be against his son, the mother against her daughter. The man's own family will be his own enemies. The split is happening. The split, by the way, will happen right in your family. Some of you are sitting here and you, you can feel the split, can't you? You see how the truth is splitting your family. It's splitting you away from your friends. It's happening. So the split's starting to occur. 
Let me tell you some of the typologies in the split. This is a split between the ungodly and the godly. This is a split between the world and Israel. This is a split between the church and the world. This is a split between false believers versus true believers. This is a split between Jesus and the false teachers of his day. You might not have seen that, but the typology of Cain and Abel, Abel is a typology of Jesus, and Cain is a typology of the religious leaders. What happened to Jesus? Same thing, right? The Cains of Israel, the religious leaders, put him to death. So when you see Cain and Abel, it's a picture of our Lord with the religious leaders in the first century. They put, they put, they put him to death. And obviously, his blood, though, unlike Abel's, his blood paid for our sins. So it's a picture of that, but it's a picture of this dividing line that happens. Let me show you the current dividing line. Sam, why don't you roll this video real quick? I want you to see how much animosity is happening in the dividing line. Look at this little girl, 13 years old, and look at the animosity foisted on her. My name is Addison Woosley. I strongly believe that abortion is murder. I also believe murder is wrong, so I'm here to ask you to make abortion illegal in Raleigh. Abortion should be illegal because it's murder. The definition of murder is the killing of one human being by another without justification and often with attended malice. When mothers choose to slaughter their innocent babies, they already have fingerprints, noses. They can recognize their mom's voice. They can hiccup, and their heart is beating. There's no way around it. Abortion is murder. So why is it? If an infant is destroyed before birth, there's no problem. But if killed after birth, it's considered a brutal murder. Abortion reminds me of slavery. Owners said that their slaves were their property, and they could do whatever they wanted with them. What, Just what? how moms say about their babies. My hope is that in a few years, we'll look back at abortion and think, that was so cruel, I can't believe we did that. Just how we all look back at slavery. The question is, who will you be? The slave owner, the man nailing the whites only side on the water fountain, Rosa Parks, or Abraham Lincoln? Who are you going to be? Make a choice. Are you choosing to be like the plantation worker flogging the little black child? Or are you going to protest even if it costs your life like Martin Luther King Jr.? Who are you going to be? If you think abortion should, if you think abortion should be illegal, would you please stand up? We need to change the law to change the... Order, 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 order. If you think abortion should be illegal, would you please stand up? We need to change the law to change the world, so let's stand up and do it. Thank you. Order, order. Every... Oh, everyone, y'all, please, please, S sir, every, please, sit down. I ask. Y'all, please, please. Y'all, please. Order. Y'all, I need order. Y'all, excuse me. Excuse me, y'all. Please, everyone, I ask.
So, so everyone, please, I need order in here. So, yes, I am a black man. And yes, everyone who signs up has a right to speak. That is the rules of the land. I cannot come up here and say you can speak or you can't speak. So, as an example, that little 13-year-old girl preaches better than most pastors, by the way. And, uh, but did you hear them screaming bloody murder behind her as she made her speech? That's the animosity now we're seeing. And God bless this little girl for having the bravery to stand in the gap. But what I want you to see is the divide. There was a time in America you could speak your opinion and no one would say anything. Now they're getting hostile towards a 13-year-old little girl. He couldn't get it calmed down. This goes on for more minutes. He can't get the people in the place where they're at calmed down. They're just going crazy. That's the split. Watch one more video real quick of this split happening between the unbelieving and the believing. Some final thoughts now. One nation under Democrat demolition. Did you know they have removed God? The majority party in the House of Representatives has deleted God from as many official congressional proceedings as possible, including swearing in witnesses. Do you swear or affirm under penalty of perjury that the testimony you're about to give is true and correct to the best of your knowledge, information, and belief? Thank you. At the record point, show the witnesses. Point of parliamentary inquiry. Yes, Mr. Johnson. I think we left out the phrase, so help me God. We did. Did we have the witnesses do it again for the record? No. Yeah, if they want to do it, but some of them don't want to do it. I don't think it's necessary, and I don't like to assert my will over other people. Well, it goes back to our founding history. It's been part of our tradition for more than two centuries, and I don't know that we should abandon it now. Could I ask the witnesses if they would, if they would choose to, to use the phrase? Mr. Chairman, Mr. Nadler, if any witness objects, uh, he should not be asked to identify himself. Uh, we do not have religious tests for office or for anything else, and uh, we should let it go with that. Which that is the face of Resident Evil, Jerry Nadler. Get used to it. It will be Nadler who leads the effort to impeach President Trump. So God is gone now. Poof, no more God in the people's house. This is not about a religious test. This is about the founding of this republic. We are a country built on a core belief in God and Judeo-Christian values. Thus, the Declaration of Independence is now under de facto assault by this crew. One nation under God, divisible by a radical political party that seeks to attack liberty and justice for all. That just is an example of where our country is going, splitting. This is the split that's happening. You need to be aware of it, but you, you need to be on the right side on that. Point of application number two is the issue of anger, okay? And I want to run through this as quick as I can, and if you need this, I'll email it to you. The first thing that God tells Cain is, you've got to figure this one out. You've got to figure out where this anger is coming from you, and you've got to master it. Like I said, there are ways that the world tries to tell you how to handle anger, and it doesn't work. What you have to figure out is, first of all, the core issues. What are the core issues going on inside of you? So it could be several things. These are what we call childhood wounds. Certain things happen to us as children, early life wounds. And things happen to us we had no control over. 
rape, molestation, abandonment, physical abuse, overly criticized, not protected, laissez-faire parenting, all of this, folks, breeds unforgiveness, resentment for the way people were treated and that no one protected them and they were vulnerable as children. That's where a lot of people's anger is at. Number two, a lot of people's anger is centered on performance-oriented for acceptance. If you grew up in a home, if you part of any program or whatever, sports or whatever, one of the things people start doing is they become performance-oriented. Well, what if that performance is rejected? Cain's performance was rejected. He wasn't rejected, but his performance was rejected, and that's why he got mad. Well, if you're in a situation where you feel you always have to perform, you always have to live up to a standard to mom or dad or whoever, a coach, a teacher, and, and but what if you don't make the standard? then you're rejected. You feel rejected. And that's the same feelings Cain had. And that's where a lot of anger comes out in people. Or three, we want something too much. We have a dream that never comes to fruition or something. We want power, we want money, we want self-image, reputation, acceptance. But we want something too much. And when something attacks that, we get mad. Or four, we envy and covet we want stuff that we shouldn't have. We know God would tell us it'd destroy you if, you if I gave this to you. But we feel entitled. We feel that life is not fair and he should, God should make up for it. So then we envy people who have more than us and covet what they have. There's a lot of anger there. Five, we have unfulfilled or unrealistic expectations. We want life to go a certain way and it doesn't. Or we thought in our situation right now, we, we would be at a different point in our lives and we're not. We fall way fully short of what we thought was going to happen in our lives. That becomes very angry. Maybe it's your health isn't where it should be. Maybe your economic situation is not where it should be. And you're thinking, what happened here? This is why people have midlife crises. Because they have unrealistic expectations. Just like the gal who went to McDonald's and found out they had ran out of chicken nuggets. She ordered a 10-piece chicken nuggets. The employee of McDonald's says, we don't have any chicken nuggets. We've ran out. You know what this lady did because she was so angry about her unfulfilled expectations? She called 911. Yeah. <laughs> calls 911. Not just once, not twice, but three times she calls 911 saying that McDonald's doesn't have my chicken nuggets. You guys need to do something about this. That's how crazy she is, right? They come and arrest her and take her away in the paddy wagon. Um, unfulfilled expectations. They should have chicken nuggets, she thinks. Six, we are protecting something. Something we are protecting. You must identify what that, what are you protecting? Is it an ego? Is it money, respect, reputation? Are you protecting your ego too much? Seven, we are afraid of losing something. We feel threatened. We lost, loss of control, our reputation, our rights, our security, our money, our future, our relationships. And then what happens is we have to then identify where the object of that anger comes from because there's always a scapegoat, which is number two here. God is the first one to blame. Those in authority, our spouses, our children, friends, parents, strangers, objects, real perceived threats, ourselves. Those become the targets for our anger, just like Cain. He went after Abel, he went after God, right? And he shouldn't, he shouldn't have had this anger, but he then foisted it on someone else, and they become the scapegoat. Well, what's the issue here? It's because people are not accessing grace and, and mercy of God. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about this real quick. We'll end here. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and this by many become defiled. Notice what he says. 
if you fall short of the grace of God, which means that you're not accessing the grace of God to help you in the situation, if you don't access the mercy that he promises to give, then what will happen in you is a root of bitterness. That's where your anger's at. The anger is there because you're not processing things and using the tools of grace and mercy to help you understand what's the source of this, how do I get over it, how do I not scapegoat people. And look what it says, springing up, causing trouble, and this, but many become defiled. What's the answer to this? Hebrews 4. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's the solution to the anger is that you ask for grace and mercy, you identify these issues, and then you start working through them in order to get control and master anger and find out what's the root of it. Do I feel cheated in life? Do I feel disappointed? Whatever it is, you'll find out. Now, let me give you a story we'll end here. And I was doing some research on this guy and uh, talk about anger. It, it's definitely happened in him. As a little boy, this boy grew up in, in an abusive home. His father beat him. He's a hard drinking man. Saw a lot of bad things. At age five, his dad left home, went to work in another part of the country. Didn't see his dad a lot. So he's missing a father. He lived with his mother. And then him and his mother decided to end up living with a priest in the area because that's all they could afford. They had no money. Her dream for her child, the, the mother, was that he would go to a Christian school, get educated, and kind of have some social mobility moving upward through education. She had good intentions, no doubt about that, but it backfired on her. This little boy, he grew up to only be about 5'4". That's as, as high as he was. As a full-grown man, he was only about 5'4". So he always suffered with his height. Um, he had blood poisoning. And so his left arm was shorter than his right. So he's 5'4", one arm shorter than the other. He's very diminutive, and he was bothered by this the rest of his life. Anyway, he goes to school, and in this Christian school, there was obviously the priests were there and, and teaching, and there was a lot of rich kids that went to this school, a lot of rich kids. And so, and, but a lot of these rich kids had radical ideas. They were exposed to a lot of things, and and kind of the rich kids had a, a uh, an authority issue against the priests a lot of times. In fact, they had so much of an authority issue, some, one, one, on one occasion, the kids killed one of the, the rectors there. got really bad. But he was among this. And what he saw was that in the country they was living in, and even in the school he went to, is that the elites governed everything by a heavy hand, had strict control, and it was imposed on them from the intelligentsia. And the kids in the school wanted to break against that regime or whatever you want to call it, that authoritarian leadership. Eventually, this kid goes to seminary. Goes to seminary, but a lot of ideologies in seminary, because that's not usually the best place to go, caught his attention. And he started seeing that violence could change things and that the lower class could arise against the elites and the intelligentsia and take control through violence and then create their own utopia on earth. Saw around him different revolutions and things of that nature. And he dropped out of seminary and went into the political arena. Over the years, he got power and he rose to the top position. He eventually estimated, killed about 20 to 60 million people. 12 million of them were Christians. He shut down the churches. He persecuted the church. And he took full control. His name was Iosif Visarionovich. Iosif Visarionovich. 
His contemporaries gave him the name Steel because he was so self-determined in his will to do what he wanted to do and kill about 60 million people, more than Hitler ever came close to. The Russian name for Steel is Stalin, Joseph Stalin. Changed his name to Joseph Steele because his will. He hated God. He hated Christians. That's why he killed them, persecuted the church, hated it. I don't know why he hated God. Maybe he blamed God for his dad beating him. Maybe he blamed God for his dad being an alcoholic and abandoning him. Maybe he blamed God for living such a miserable, poor life with these priests in this school. Maybe he hated God for the intelligentsia and the elite holding him down. I don't know. But there's a lot of factors that could cause this boy eventually to grow up and hate humanity and kill his own people, upwards to 60 million people. And on the day he was dying, or the few days he had left dying, his daughter, uh, Svetlana, reported what her dad was doing on his deathbed. He was plagued by terrifying hallucinations. Maybe it wasn't hallucinations. Maybe it was demons. I don't know. But right before he died, Joseph Stalin sat up in his bed, a self-avowed atheist who doesn't believe that God exists, clenched his fist towards the God of heaven, and fell back in his pillow and died. Shaking his fist at the supposed unknown God that he didn't believe in. To his very last second, clenching his fist towards God. Cain, sin crouches at your door, but you must master it. Otherwise, it will lead you out of control. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.